Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. These are the audio versions of the sermons preached each Sunday. I hope you enjoy. Our first reading today is from Genesis, the first chapter, beginning at the first verse. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we have come to the last sermon in our sermon series, Sans Peril, Without Equal. We've been going through the whole summer. I was supposed to do this sermon series next summer, but because I couldn't go on my sabbatical, as I told you in the first sermon of the series, I bumped it up to this summer, and I'm hoping that maybe next summer I'll be able to go. Who knows? It may not happen. But if you've been here and you've been watching, you know that the concept behind this series is that when something is said to be sans peril, it means that it is above all the rest, literally in a class by itself. And so each week we've been looking at two people who are the best in their particular field. And we've been asking the question, not only what makes them successful, but what are the qualities and characteristics that allowed them to rise to the top? And then we've been looking at those qualities and characteristics through a biblical lens. And we've been asking the question, how does God want us to use those qualities and characteristics to further our walk with God and better create God's kingdom here on earth? Throughout the last nine sermons that we've preached on this and that I've spoken to you, we've been talking about different people who are the best. So we've talked about the best chefs, the best inventors, the best athletes, the best writers. And this week we're going to end with the best scientists in the world. Now, before I dive into this, I just want to define what a scientist does because I think this is very important for what we're going to be doing going forward. A scientist is someone who observes the world 
and through trial and error is able to determine how the world functions. Now this is really important for what we're going to be talking about today because we're talking about people who are the best at these observations, the best at trial and error at figuring out how the world functions and operates. We're going to be talking about Marie Curie and the Wright brothers. I want to begin with Marie Curie, who was born Marie Sladowska. She was born in 1867 in Warsaw, Poland. She was born into a family where her father was a teacher of mathematics and physics, and she was known for her prodigious memory. She could memorize just about anything, and she was also known for her ability to understand really complex ideas and concepts. It became clear to her at a certain point that she was not going to be able to pursue her dreams of higher education in Poland. So she ended up moving to France where she enrolled in the University of Paris. And it is there that she studied physics, mathematics, and chemistry with almost a compulsive intensity. She had almost no money to go to school, and so she ended up doing tutoring on the side, and the money she earned from tutoring helped her to pay the rent and also allowed her to subsist on a diet of bread, butter, and tea. That's literally what she ate and drank in order to get through her schooling. She obviously could not afford to pay for oil, for heat, during the Parisian winters. And so what she would do is she would wear all the clothes that she owned in order not to freeze at night. She enrolled in the University of Paris in 1891. She graduated in 1893 with her degree in physics and 1894 with her degree in mathematics. Now this is remarkable for a number of reasons. It's remarkable in the first place because French was not her native language. So when she went to the University of Paris, she had to learn how to do academics in a language that she didn't really know particularly well. And so she learned it over a period of time. Secondly, she was a woman trying to compete in fields that were dominated solely by men. And when I mean they were dominated by men, I mean that she was the only woman in her field. So it was believed at that time that women were mentally incapable of comprehending the various nuances and complexities of these fields. But she was able to get her degree in spite of this stigma. The only problem that she ran into was the fact that she couldn't get lab space to perform her experiments because nobody wanted to have a woman in their lab. This all changed, however, when she met the French physicist Pierre Curie. He was willing to give her space in his lab, and as a result, they formed a very wonderful bond together, a friendship over the fact that they both love the natural sciences. And this bond eventually evolved to become a romance, and Pierre proposed to Marie. Now initially she rejected his proposal. She had intended on moving back to Poland in order to pursue her career, but when she went back she realized that in fact this was not going to be able to happen. So she comes back to Paris and she accepts his proposal, which was wonderful because truthfully Pierre was her perfect match. He loved her unconditionally. And not only that, but he recognized her true genius as a scientist. And so the two of them would collaborate together on a lot of different projects throughout their careers. After their marriage, she decides that she wants to pursue her PhD. And the subject that really interests her is based on a paper that was published by a man named Henry Becquerel. And this paper was on the properties of uranium. And what he had noticed is that uranium salts 
that they had rays that were very similar to x-rays in their penetrating power. But what made them unique was that unlike x-rays that needed an external energy source, the uranium salts did not require this. And so Marie Curie, she wanted to understand where this energy came from in the uranium, and did other elements possess these same types of properties? And as a result of her research, she ends up coining the term radioactivity. And she theorizes that the radiation found in uranium comes within the uranium itself. Now, this idea, this theory, was revolutionary because it upended all of the common wisdom that the atom was indivisible. So what they believed at that point in time in science is that the hydrogen atom, the helium atom, that these things could not be divided. And so her research opened up entirely new fields of scientific thought. It created quantum mechanics and it also created the field of nuclear energy. As a result of her research and the research of her husband and Henry Becquerel, the same year she received her PhD, she also received the Nobel Prize in Physics along with those two men, with her husband and Henry Becquerel, for the discovery of radiation. Marie Curie was the first woman to receive a Nobel Prize. Now, there are three qualities that made Marie Curie very successful. The first quality she possesses is that she was multidisciplinary. So this is a woman who understood, as I told you, physics, mathematics, and chemistry. And she was able to draw on all of these subjects and actually pull them all together in ways that nobody had ever done before. The second aspect of her success, the second quality that made her successful, was the fact that she had a meticulous work ethic. She was willing to go at problems that seemed unsolvable until she was able to overcome the barriers. And the third thing that made her successful was that she was willing to challenge the status quo. Now this is very, very unique. So when she was doing her research on radiation, this was a brand new field, there was no precedence for this, and she knew that by publishing her data, she was gonna be upending whole schools of scientific thought. Now this is something that many people would not have done, simply because most people, when they are taught something, they assume that it is right and correct, and they're not gonna go against it. It takes a particular kind of person to challenge the status quo, to upend what everybody else thinks is true, but this is why she ended up earning the Nobel Prize. A year after she gets the Nobel Prize in 1906, tragedy strikes in her life though. Her husband, Pierre, he was crossing a street in Paris and he ended up getting hit by a horse and carriage and he was crushed underneath its wheels. This was absolutely devastating for Marie. They had a daughter together and it was something that truly just crushed her on the inside as you might understand, he was her soulmate. But this actually opened up an entirely new world for her because after her husband dies, the University of Paris gives her the professorship that he once held. She gets his seat, and as a result, she now has access to all of these resources she didn't have before. Now, she was the first woman to teach at the Sorbonne. This was a big deal. And now, she was able to do research in a way that she hadn't been able to do before. So she continues to do her research in the area of radiation and she discovers two new elements on the periodic table. She discovers polonium and radium. 
Now, her discovery of uranium and to be able to isolate pure radium was something that you have to understand took a lot of work on her part. She had to go out and personally excavate seven tons of iron ore from the mountain in order to get pure radium. But in being able to do so, she revolutionized what people understood about radiation once again. And this was so revolutionary that she was awarded a second Nobel Prize in 1911, this time in the area of chemistry. Marie Curie is the only woman to win two Nobel Prizes, and she's the only person, male or female, to win two Nobel Prizes in two different scientific fields. Now, if that wasn't enough to make you think that this woman is just absolutely incredible, let me tell you about what she did during World War I. World War I breaks out, and of course, all these men are going to war, and they're getting shot by all of these weapons and blown up by bombs. And what she realized was that if they were going to survive, they needed medical treatment immediately. And so what she does is she starts modifying these trucks so that they have x-rays on them. It's kind of remarkable what she does. So she makes these mobile x-ray units and they would go out into the field once a man had been shot and they would do the x-ray right then and there so that the surgeons could start performing surgery. And this allowed them to have as much information as possible on exactly what had happened to them. It is estimated that more than a million soldiers were x-rayed by these mobile x-ray units and she saved thousands and thousands of lives as a result of these mobile x-ray units that she created. She also donated all of the money from her second Nobel Prize to the war effort. She put them into war bonds, knowing that they likely would not be repaid. She even tried to give her Nobel gold medals to the French National Bank, which refused them because they said, look, you are a national treasure to us. You really represent the French people well, and we would never want to do that. So she couldn't give those over. But she was a woman who was truly an international celebrity. She was the female version of Einstein. She was known all over the world. She traveled all over the world later in her life. She was an icon to young women of what they could achieve in science. And she is to this day considered to be one of the greatest scientists of all time. Some have argued that she still is the greatest scientist of all time. Which leads us to talking about Wilbur and Orville Wright, the brothers who cracked the code of machine-driven flight, which until they created their plane was thought to be a pipe dream with no realistic solution. And they seemed an unlikely pair to be able to solve the problem of flight, given that these two brothers owned a bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio. Unlike Marie Curie, they were not scientists. They had no understanding of science in the way that she did. But yet, in 1896, the two brothers became obsessed with the idea of trying to solve the problem of machine-driven flight. And so they started reading different books on flight and aeronautics, and most of what was known about flight at that time came from our knowledge of bird wings. And so they started studying these bird wings, and by 1899, Wilbur had devised a system on a biplane kite that allowed it to twist or warp the biplane so that it could roll left or roll right. 
And this system that they had created allowed them to have an understanding of how flight was possible. And so they decided they wanted to take this system and they wanted to convert it over. They wanted to make a much larger version of the kite that was a glider that could hold the weight of a man but utilize the same principles. So by 1900, they had created this kite and they decided that they wanted to fly it in a place with a lot of wind. So they start scouring the United States, and they figure out that they want to go try to fly this kite or this glider in the Outer Banks of North Carolina at a place called Kill Devil Hills. Now, Kill Devil Hills was a very barren landscape in the early 1900s. This is what it looks like. You can see right here, it's basically a barren area with a lot of sand dunes and sand everywhere, which is what they wanted because the wind would allow them to fly off the sand dunes and if they crashed, they wouldn't hurt themselves in the same way. They would just crash into sand as opposed to hard ground. So, in 1900, they traveled down to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and they start testing this glider. At first, they use it like a kite, and this allows them to be able to kind of make adjustments to the control system, and you can see right there that they're, they're using the glider as a kite, and then they decide what they're gonna do is they're gonna drag this thing up to the top of a dune, and Orville, along with a local teenager, would launch Wilbur off of the dunes. Now, initially, he could only go about 100 feet on the glider, but they were able to make adjustments to it so that they were able to go 200, 300, 400 feet, sometimes at speeds upwards of 30 miles per hour. Wilbur took dozens of trips off of the dunes during that first trip down to the Outer Banks, and as a result, they felt very good about what they had learned. They packed everything up and they returned to Dayton. They moved it into phase two this time. And phase two was they were gonna take all of this scientific data and they were gonna utilize it to create their second glider. Now, they put it all together, they had taken all of this meticulous data, put it into it, and then in 1901, they travel in the summer down to the Outer Banks again. So they get the glider, they piece it all together, and they go up to take off. And as you can see right here, they're trying to get ready to go, and as they, take Wilbur and they shoot him off, he starts crashing into the ground. And they think, well, maybe we've done something wrong. So they go back and they do it again and they keep crashing. They crash over and over again. And what they eventually realize is that all of that scientific data that they had used to create their glider, that scientific data was completely useless. Those scientists had no idea what they were talking about. So they had wasted a year of their time and they realized that they were gonna have to start from scratch. So they pack everything up, they go back to Dayton. And this time what they do, is they create a wind tunnel in their attic. And with this wind tunnel, they are able to test varieties of materials and how the air flows over them and they keep all of these very meticulous notes. And so as a result, they're able to create a new glider and this glider is based on hundreds of hours of focused research. So they put the glider together and they pack it up and they say, okay, this is good, we're gonna take it down. They go down to the outer banks and this time the glider works exactly as they hoped that it would. So in 1902, in the summer, they head down there and they get the glider ready. And because of some adjustments that they have made to the tail, they are now able to glide at distances of greater than 600 feet. And not only that, 
but they are actually able with this glider, they can soar, they can rise, they can dive, they can bank, they can turn and circle, and they can land with confidence. Now, what you have to realize is that in 1902, once they had been able to achieve this with their glider, these two men knew how to fly. In 1902, they had broken the mystery of flight, a mystery that had eluded humans for millennia. They now knew how to fly. The only thing they lacked at this point was a motor and propellers. So they pack everything up again, they head back to Dayton, and they write to Henry Ford, because they think that Henry Ford might be able to help them make their motor. And they ask Henry Ford, they give him specifications, say, look, we need a four-cylinder motor, it needs to have eight horsepower, and it needs to weigh 200 pounds or less. Well, Henry Ford never writes back to them. So what they end up doing is they create their own motor using their metal lathe and drill press that they use to create bicycle parts. And they work on this thing until eventually they have a functioning motor. And the motor that they create for themselves is four cylinders, it has 16 horsepower, twice the horsepower that they had needed, and it weighs 152 pounds, well under what they required. The last thing they had to do was to create the propeller. Now, of all the things that they had to create in order to achieve flight, this would prove to be one of the most challenging because very little was known about the physics of air propulsion at this time. And what they eventually came up with was two eight and a half foot propellers that were made of three spruce lamentations that had been glued together and carved by hand. Now this is pretty remarkable because these propellers had to be the exact same size, they had to be exactly the same because if they were off in any way, then the plane would twist, it wouldn't be able to go straight forward, but they were able to carve these out by hand. Eventually, they felt good about the propellers and what they had created, and so because they couldn't put the entire thing together there in Dayton, they decided they were going to ship the whole thing down. So on September 18th, 1903, they crate everything up. They put together the motor, the propellers, the frame, the parts weighing 675 pounds, and they ship it down to the Outer Banks. And it takes them the better part of two months to put this whole thing together to get it the way that they want it to be. And then on December 14th, 1903, they flip a coin, and Wilbur wins, and they decide, okay, it's time to get this going. So they take it out to the track, they get the propellers going, Wilbur's on there, it starts edging forward, and they pull up on the controls, Wilbur does, and then it crashes down too fast. He had pulled too hard, and it ends up breaking a part of the plane. So they decide, you know what, we're actually gonna need to go back and fix it, so they take it back to the hangar, they end up fixing the plane, it takes them three days, and then on December 17th, 1903, they decide that it's time to try again. This time, it's Orville's turn. So they go out, they put it onto the track, and at 10.35 a.m., they get the propellers going, and Wilbur releases the restraining rope, and it starts to edge down the track, and Wilbur walks alongside until it starts to pick up speed, and at that moment, flight had been achieved. That first flight, it only lasted 12 seconds and went a distance of 120 feet, but it was real, true, genuine flight. Over the next hour and a half, the two brothers would go back and forth trying to fly their plane, and each time they would go a little bit further with the last flight lasting 59 seconds and going a distance of more than half a mile. Now, what made the Wright brothers successful 
is exactly what made Marie Curie successful. So, in the same place, they were multidisciplinary. So, these are men who took their knowledge of bicycles, kites, and machinery, and put all of those things together to create their plane. Secondly, they were meticulous in their work ethic. They would approach problems that seemed unsolvable, and they would keep going at them until they had found a way to overcome that barrier. And finally, they were willing to challenge the status quo. Most people at that time were saying that machine-driven flight was impossible. And no one thought that these two brothers who came from Dayton, Ohio, who ran a bicycle shop, were going to be the first people to achieve flight. But they were able to solve this mystery that had truly eluded human beings for millennia. Now what I find to be so interesting and what I love about Marie Curie and the Wright brothers is that they transformed our world by revealing to us what was sitting right in front of our eyes. So Marie Curie, she didn't invent radiation. She simply revealed to us what was already there inside of the uranium. Likewise, the Wright brothers, they didn't invent flight. Birds and insects have been able to fly for millions of years. They simply revealed to us how air moving over a wing creates lift. And so the question you might be asking is, well, what do these scientists have to teach us about being Christian? And what's amazing is that we read this morning, you heard Judy read from Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about how God created the universe. And what science has exposed to us or taught us is that when God created the universe, God created it according to certain parameters. There are laws that dictate how the universe is supposed to function. So those laws are what allow for certain elements in the periodic table to exist. So things like uranium, polonium, and radium, they exist because of the laws that God put into place. In the same way, those laws allow for us to fly through the air. Now, what I believe to be true is that the universe is like this grand puzzle and that God is sitting there with all of these puzzle pieces and is begging us to put them together so that we can solve these hidden mysteries that are sitting right in front of our eyes. And this is not something that I just made up. This is actually something that we find in the scripture. And so what we read this morning from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, think of us in this way. And when he's using the word us, he means Christians. So Christians need to think of themselves in this way. That we are servants of Christ, which we all know that we are supposed to be followers or disciples of Jesus. But also that we are stewards of God's mysteries. Now, I think that that's a really interesting idea, that we are stewards of God's mysteries. This idea that Paul is putting forth is that God has put us in charge of God's mysteries. So I think one of the highest callings of Christians is not only to be a follower of Jesus, to follow in his footsteps, but also one of our highest callings is to truly be a steward of God's mysteries. So what that means is, is that we have to be willing to discover the hidden mysteries of the universe. We have to be willing to, to unravel those mysteries because the more we know about those mysteries, the more we figure out how the universe functions and works, the more profound our experience of God and God's universe is going to be. Think about how 
flight and radiation have changed our world. So when you think about radiation, the discovery of radiation has allowed us not only to do x-rays, but to fight cancer and also to create nuclear energy. And nuclear energy, when we can get it right, it will be a truly clean, limitless source of energy for us. Likewise, when you think about flight, flight doesn't just get us where we want to go faster, which it does. I mean, we can fly around the world in times that humans previously could never do before. But when you think about it, it took 66 years from the time the Wright brothers first learned how to fly for us to put a man on the moon. Now, that's remarkable. We go for millennia without even being able to fly at all. And then once we're able to fly, 66 years to leave the earth to put a man on the moon. Now, if you take those two things and you put them together, flight and radiation, then it opens up this entire gateway to God's universe. Literally, we can see all of God's creation. Now, we tend to think of God's creation in terms of the earth, and we say this is God's creation, and we are part of God's creation, and we think of that as the totality. We are only a very small part of God's creation, and I really believe that when we unlock these mysteries, what they do is they allow us to truly explore all of God's creation, which is what I feel that God is calling us to do. Now, I'm not saying that God expects you to be as ingenious as Marie Curie or the Wright brothers, but what I am saying is that God wants you to be as inquisitive as they were. Because the more that you learn about the natural universe, the more you embrace your role as a steward of God's mysteries, the closer you're gonna draw to God because you're gonna understand more about those mysteries of the universe. And this leads me to the point of this sermon series. For the last nine sermons, we've been talking about people who are the best at what they do. And what you may have noticed is that these people are constantly pushing the boundaries of what we think is possible. Just when we think we've hit the limits of our intelligence, just when we think we've hit the limits of our creativity, just when we think we've hit the limits of our physical capabilities, they push it one step further. These people show us how God envisioned us as a species. They show us the potential of what we could become as a species. And I think this is really important for us to look to people like this who keep pushing the bar higher and higher because that's the exact opposite of what generally happens in Christianity. In Christianity, we have classically been told what we are not able to do. In fact, the Reformation that allowed for us to be here, that caused our denomination, that allowed it to come into existence, our Reformation 500 years ago, it talks about the limitations of human beings, about how we are sinful, about how we are depraved, about how we can do nothing apart from the grace of Christ. Now, this is an important message, but we are in a new Reformation right now. It's been 500 years. The church is being reformed literally as we speak. And what I believe is that the Christianity of the future is really talking about the possibilities of our potential, about how God is pushing us to become better than we are right now. Now, the truth is, is that as individuals, 
we're never going to be as amazing as the people we've talked about throughout this series. We're never going to be like them. We simply don't have that ability. But what I do believe is that together, God can push us as a church, as a group, to reach our potential with one another. And this is really what I want us to head for. This is what I've been aiming for with this series, is that as we see each of these individuals who are the best at what they do, we have to realize that it's as a church together that we can become the best at what we do. And so my hope is and my prayer is that as a church that we would not fall into the trap of where many churches are, where you hear these phrases, well, it can't be done, or that's impossible, or we've never done it that way before. I hope that we will become a church where we say all the time, with God, anything is possible. And I truly believe that to be true, that with God, anything is possible, that if we work together as a group, if we really try to push each other to our potential, then as a church, we can do things that we never thought were possible before. And so I hope that we would not think about this in terms of individualism. It's not you as an individual, it's us as a group, it's us as a community. And if we work together as a community, then I truly believe that God can push us to be sans pareil without equal. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.